Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today, I'll be speaking with Judith Nelson, MD, JD, lead author on an article published in Critical Care Medicine entitled, Choosing and Using Screening Criteria for Palliative Care Consultation in the Intensive Care Unit, a report from the IPAL ICU, or Improving Palliative Care in the ICU, Advisory Board. Nelson is Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Hertzberg Palliative Care Institute at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. She is also Director of the IPAL ICU Project. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Nelson. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, I was hoping you could uh, begin um, by telling us a little bit about your background and what really sparked your interest uh, in uh, the idea of blending palliative care and intensive care medicine? I became unconsciously involved in providing palliative care almost as soon as I began providing intensive care. And it was only perhaps 10 years later that I became more conscious of the uh, high mortality rates in the intensive care unit, even with the best intensive care, and the many complex needs of patients and families uh, with critical illness. And it was around the time that the palliative care movement was really taking hold in the United States in terms of hospital-based palliative care, that this was coming to the forefront of my mind. And in my intensive care unit, a group of geriatricians who were very instrumental in moving the field of hospital-based palliative care forward invited me to participate in a series of seminars educating faculty and clinicians about providing uh, palliative care in a variety of settings. And it was beginning then, which was about the mid-1990s, that my interests were increasingly focused on the intersections of intensive care and palliative care. My recognition from fairly early on was that the intensive care unit was a very important and very unique place to be providing and improving palliative care. It was not the same as delivering palliative care on a hospital ward. It was not the same as delivering palliative care on a palliative care-focused unit. Uh, we were and are and continue to be intensive care units. And so there was a lot of new conceptualization to be done in our field as intensive care uh, teams on how to incorporate palliative care in an appropriate way in ICUs. It's interesting you, you, as you as you speak with the idea of from the onset you really were practicing palliative care and intensive care uh, medicine together. You allude to this a bit in um, in the, the current article that we'll be discussing the the concepts of primary versus secondary palliative care. And, you know, sometimes when you when I talk to people about what palliative care means, people say, "Well, isn't that just good medicine?" Um, and I, I do wonder how to make that distinction for people between what they should be, sh should be doing and what they should be capable of doing as a primary intensive care physician um, and the differences of when, when one would need palliative care consultation. This is a very important distinction, and it's not always 
uh, crystal clear when we began focusing on the intersections of intensive care and palliative care, the field of palliative care medicine as a specialty was just beginning a period of very rapid expansion. And what has happened over the past 10 to 15 years is that there has been a very uh, firm now establishment of palliative care as a true specialty, palliative medicine as a true specialty, which was then recognized uh, in 2006 by the American Board of Internal Medicine and became a, uh, an ABIM-sponsored certification uh, that is open to physicians from a variety of fields. Remarkably, that certification was from the beginning sponsored by 10 specialty boards so that uh, specialists in a variety of areas, including surgery, anesthesia, and so forth, as well as internal medicine, could become eligible with appropriate training. But palliative medicine is a specific specialty, and uh, it requires very specific and focused training. And one of the problems that we faced in the beginning of this period of looking at the intersections of intensive care and palliative care is that those of us who were very interested in providing palliative care had not been, for the most part, formally trained in this area. So one distinction is whether or not someone is officially and formally trained and certified in palliative medicine or uh, through the nursing organizations and boards in palliative nursing, hospice and palliative nursing. But the issue that you raise is a broader one, which is when do you need someone who is a specialist and when can the palliative care be appropriately delivered by the primary clinicians, and they could be the intensive care clinicians or other clinicians depending on how the intensive care unit is structured. And this has led us to distinguish two main models of providing palliative care in the intensive care unit, one which we've called the consultative model uh, in which palliative care is strongly involving specialists, formally trained specialists in palliative medicine, and to come into the intensive care unit and provide specialty input in the care. And at the other end of the spectrum, a model that we have called the integrative model in which the principles and practices and processes of palliative medicine are embedded uh, in the regular practice of the intensive care clinicians in their own practice. And this is obviously a spectrum and in different settings and different intensive care units and confronting problems with different patients and families, one might be positioned at a different point on this spectrum. I think that we can analogize this to the way we use specialists uh, in other uh, areas when we are practicing intensive care. So all of us who are intensive care specialists uh, have to have basic skills and knowledge in a variety of areas, uh, renal disease, infectious disease, cardiology, and so forth. 
But when problems become more complex or more refractory to our initial therapy, then it would be appropriate, as in other areas, to involve specialists in palliative medicine if they are available. What is now clear is that as the population continues to age and as we increasingly provide aggressive treatments to an older population and have more and more of them in our intensive care units, that we will not have in the foreseeable future enough palliative care specialists to meet this need single-handedly or to meet the palliative needs of patients and families in intensive care units single-handedly. And so the most feasible model looking forward is going to be one in which this responsibility for providing good palliative care is shared between intensive care units and intensive care specialists and those who specialize in palliative medicine. Those are wonderful points. And um, I think for the audience listening, uh, in terms of moving forward and integrating palliative care concepts within intensive care units, uh, a wonderful resource uh, that you've been um, leading, the IPAL-ICU project, um, is a great resource. And I was hoping you could elaborate a little bit on how how that came about and and what types of resources uh, are available um, on that site. Well, I'm delighted to share uh, information about this resource because I think it can uh, make life much easier and uh, for people practicing in intensive care units and wanting to integrate palliative care in intensive care units and can improve the quality of the palliative care that they deliver in this setting. One of the things we recognized is that there was not a central uh, venue for sharing effective practical resources and technical assistance and expert guidance and other resources with people doing this work in the field. And there was a number of situations in which people were struggling to develop similar resources for the same purposes in different institutions without taking advantage of sharing uh, the great work that others had done. And so with support from the National Institute on Aging, uh, which provided me with some resources to establish and devote time to this program and support from the Center to Advance Palliative Care, which is a web-based resource for palliative medicine across many aspects in this country, we were able to establish this program. And from the beginning, our project was guided by an interdisciplinary advisory board that includes doctors, nurses, social workers from a diverse group of venues. So we have community-based intensivists represented on this board. We have academic, institutionally-based board members. We have adult intensivists, pediatric intensivists, and so forth. And this group has been able to bring these various areas of expertise together to provide guidance and assistance in areas that clinicians and administrators in ICUs commonly face in terms of integrating palliative and intensive care, and to provide 
resources of a variety of kinds for people to access for free on the website. And the website, again, is at the Center to Advance Palliative Care, which is capc.org. And the program is IPAL, Improving Palliative Care, IPAL-ICU. So www.capsi.org, IPAL-ICU. What one can find going to the IPAL-ICU website is, first of all, a portfolio of materials, articles, monographs, and presentations prepared by our board uh, to provide assistance in some of the challenging areas that come up on a day-to-day basis in ICUs across the country. And it was for the portfolio that we developed the article that we were honored to uh, have accepted for publication in Critical Care Medicine in September on choosing and using screening criteria for palliative care. We have a variety of other articles that have been published and appear in the IPAL-ICU portfolio along with uh, other kinds of monographs and presentations. So this is a place where one can go to find interdisciplinary advice from a group of experts who come together around these topics. One in particular that people have found very, very useful is a monograph entitled Organizing an ICU Palliative Care Initiative, which takes people step-by-step in a very practical way through the process of systems change in terms of integrating ICU palliative care. Uh, And a variety of other um, areas of focus are represented in the portfolio. In addition, we have a section entitled Improvement Tools, which includes a whole variety of very useful resources, checklists, goal sheets, pocket cards, educational materials, uh, and other strategies and tools that folks around the country can use to improve palliative care in their intensive care units. We have a reference library that is updated on a monthly basis on a whole variety of relevant topics. So if someone wants to see the scientific background in the area, one can go and choose a topic and find the latest references selected by us as being useful for people working in this field. And we describe the members of our advisory board and provide some other uh, resources on the site. There's also a list of model programs uh, that are led by folks who are willing to share their experiences uh, on a consultative basis with people needing special assistance. So the IPAL-ICU project has been uh, an addition to the field uh, and a support uh, that will continue to grow. And in fact, the IPAL-ICU program has also now expanded into some other areas, some of which overlap with intensive care. For example, there is now IPAL-EM, which focuses on uh, the emergency department and emergency medicine, and a further IPAL-ICU project is now IPAL-OP, relating to outpatient care. But the first program was IPAL-ICU, and it continues to grow. Yes, certainly having spent a fair amount of time on this site, it really is a wonderful resource. And 
one of the other things I think that, um, as I recall, is on there that I found helpful was uh, kind of making the case to administrative uh, uh, personnel at your institution uh, for resources. And uh, certainly I've, co I've come back there time and time again uh, to help uh, work in our institution as well. Correct. So a number of uh, in intensive care units or palliative care programs have found it very useful to have um, this basic presentation on how to build a case for uh, support for integrating palliative care and improving palliative care and intensive care settings. And we provide this PowerPoint presentation for others to use uh, as is or modify, ideally, to make it most appropriate for their local context. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing that. The, the, so the article that uh, will be published uh, in September in Critical Care Medicine uh, really points to this uh, concept of palliative care consultation, although alludes to perhaps an integrative and consultative model uh, blended. Uh, but you, you sought to kind of really review the literature and, and, and uh, describe what has been used uh, in terms of using screening tools or triggers for palliative care consultation in the intensive care unit. Can you describe a bit about the process and what, what, you've, what you identified as, uh, as types of criteria that we should consider using? Sure. One of the things we wanted to do was to help people um, know in, in a uh, convenient way what criteria have been used uh, by other institutions, at least to the extent um, that they've been reported in the literature or uh, shared with us uh, individually, and so that people would not, again, have to reinvent the wheel over and over again in a variety of institutions. Um, and looking through the literature, um, what we saw is that um, most of these screening criteria fell into uh, several categories. Uh, one would be a series of criteria that try to identify patients who are facing uh, uncertain and potentially poor prognosis, either for uh, survival or increasingly important in terms of uh, intensivists looking forward is patients who survive the intensive care unit, but in states of functional or cognitive impairment. So one group of criteria would try to identify patients um, whose needs might be more complex uh, or more intense because they uh, face a particularly uh, difficult future. Um, and this might include patients like those who have prolonged stays in intensive care units, those who uh, have had uh, devastating brain injuries, and so forth. Another group of criteria, which is uh, really probably most represent a way to serve as surrogate markers of the seriousness of illness and the future prognosis, are uh, criteria related to the utilization of intensive care resources. So again, patients on prolonged mechanical ventilation, patients in the ICU for a long time, uh, patients requiring uh, a variety of intensive interventions can be used as criteria that identify uh, patients who may have particularly complex or refractory needs. Um, and then uh, one of the things we uh, wanted to emphasize is that um, patients and families may need 
uh, more specialized palliative care input if there is a great deal of distress, either physical or psychological, and either for the patient or the family. And finally, a a more open-ended set of criteria that rely really on the judgment of a variety of members of the interdisciplinary team about uh, needing help with the management of difficult situations. And so these are the criteria that have most commonly been reported and used, and these are the criteria that have been uh, utilized in several different initiatives that consistently have been reported as improving, certainly, utilization outcomes uh, for critical illness in a variety of before and after studies. Yeah, it's interesting how, um, I mean, I guess in some regards it, it pertains to the making the business case for palliative care integration, but how we focused on um, utilization as terms of triggers or criteria for involving palliative care clinicians. Um, you know, I, it gives me, I guess, a, sometimes a little bit of angst or, or uncertainty. As, is, is that appropriate? And interestingly, as you point out, I think in a couple of places in the in the article, that um, in terms of making a business case, it's not always uh, a financial implication of reducing um, uh, certain burdensome type treatments. Uh, it may actually turn out that um, from a financial case, it, it turns out to be uh, counterproductive from the hospital standpoint. I just wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on that and how we decide what types of criteria are are the most appropriate uh, in in selecting? This is a really key point because uh, it is very, very important not to uh, present this or to think about it in terms of cost savings as the primary goal. And one of the really reassuring Uh, things about the literature on this topic is that uh, to the extent that utilization has been improved, this has not come um, at the cost of increasing mortality in intensive care units. On the contrary, intensive care unit mortality is maintained um, even though uh, greater efficiencies may be achieved in uh, the use of intensive care resources. And this is because What is happening when patients in the ICU and their families are getting good palliative care is that an appropriate care plan is getting put into place more quickly, and it's a care plan that is appropriate um, in terms of matching the care with the goals and values and preferences of this patient and doing so on a timely basis. This is how the utilization gets optimized. It is not by withdrawing beneficial interventions from patients in intensive care units. So it is really a win-win situation and should be presented in that way, that patients and families get better care, that clinical outcomes as well as utilization outcomes are improved, and there is no downside in terms of shortening uh, the period of intensive care Um, that would be benefiting these patients uh, as measured by their clinical outcomes. I think this is really very, very key. The other thing is that we're not just talking about costs in terms of utilization benefits. We're also talking about 
uh, having intensive care services available to patients who need them. So we want to have good patient flow through intensive care units so that critically ill patients in emergency departments and operating areas can get to the intensive care unit as fast as they need to. And again, this depends on uh, efficient matching of the care that's being delivered in the intensive care unit to the goals and values of the patients and their families in relation to this patient's condition. And when people are getting good palliative care, which includes good communication about care goals, a timely and appropriate plan gets put into place quickly. Great. Thank you so much. for That That was very well articulated and I think an an absolutely important point to drive home to a very large audience uh, who's uh, involved, all the stakeholders that are involved in intensive care medicine. You know, I, I, I imagine that at some point perhaps we'll even have literature to suggest, similar to the oncology world, that really good integration of palliative care will actually decrease mortality by not utilizing some of these burdensome therapies that actually, in, in fact, make people worse and make people sicker and, and, and cause them to die in the intensive care unit and more so get people to appropriate settings where they can um, really enjoy uh, their quality of life to a maximum. Well, as you have pointed out, we already have uh, some very important literature emerging in oncology that patients who have palliative care integrated uh, earlier in their course uh, live longer rather than shorter. Now, this is not a primary outcome of this initial study, and we're talking about ambulatory cancer patients, but this is not the first time uh, that uh, we have seen this uh, kind of finding in the literature, and I agree with you that what we would expect to see, in fact, is that good communication and relieving patient distress is going to um, improve patient outcomes and not harm them. And as we look forward to uh, the, the dealing with the survivorship issues, for intensive care patients. We are absolutely going to need uh, expert intensive care, palliative care, uh, to help prepare these people during the intensive care unit experience for life that may be more challenging and will be more challenging than it was before they were critically ill and so forth. So um, we have probably the most important issue that we need to face in terms of the integration of intensive care and palliative care is to recognize that these are not mutually exclusive approaches to the critically ill patient. They are highly complementary approaches that seem to produce a synergistically positive effect. Great, and thank you for that. The In, in your article, um, you really spent a lot of time uh, discussing not just the criteria, because certainly selection of the criteria for perhaps for palliative care um, consultation is important, but the process of implementation really can be that much more difficult. I think we see that in, in many areas of critical care. We create protocols or guidelines, but the actual implementation uh, of those um, tend to be uh, much more um, elaborate and uh, challenging than the actual selection. 
I was hoping you can speak to how to go about uh, implementing both integrative palliative care and um, consultative uh, triggers for palliative care in the intensive care unit uh, and how to best um, empower the clinicians involved uh, in intensive care medicine to embrace uh, these approaches. Again, I think you're raising a very important issue, which is how do we... um, go about in a practical way making system change happen in this area. It will not work to simply grab a set of criteria reported in the literature from another institution, present them to the intensive care unit and to the palliative care service and to the entire institution, and mandate that Everyone on this list needs to have a palliative care consultation, or it probably will not work, and it could be extremely counterproductive in a variety of ways. Um, And one can imagine what some of those might be. First of all, palliative care service may not be uh, properly resourced to handle all of this, but probably uh, more challenging could be uh, the response to this kind of mandatory strategy for involving palliative care specialists in the care of patients who already have uh, primary care clinicians who usually have more freedom to involve consultants uh, as they see appropriate. And so I think great care has to be taken from the beginning to plan this process in a way that these criteria emerge from the process um, and are not predetermined from the outset. So that would involve meeting with the people in the institution who have a stake in this kind of process, namely uh, certainly the intensive care and palliative care leadership, but also physicians and nurses in other areas who are practicing in the intensive care unit, certainly physicians whose patients might be uh, falling within criteria for palliative care consultation ought to have a voice in what types of criteria might be appropriate. And then others like social workers and case managers and perhaps even the voice of patients and families need to be heard uh, on this topic. So the question of who is appropriate for a palliative care consultation can be answered uh, not solely by reviewing the literature, which we have tried to summarize in this article that's going to appear in Critical Care Medicine, but also by really investigating and listening around the institution as to what people think is appropriate and how this will come into synchrony with the institutional's priority, the institution's priorities. Um, And this is a process that cannot be sidestepped or jumped past. There are many institutions where there have not been uh, screening criteria used, where palliative care services make their uh, usefulness and their contributions known, and over time they get called more and more just because they're helpful. Um, That's, of course, the ideal situation. But it may also be a jump start 
to present some criteria that have worked well in other institutions and that have some face validity in one's own institution. And in those situations, to uh, make everybody aware more quickly of what the palliative care specialists may be able to contribute to the care. And from there, one can really build a sustainable system that will endure without mandate. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly hard work. Um, and I think any culture change and system changes, uh, as many folks who are listening, I'm sure, uh, are well aware of, are, are the most challenging aspects. Um, but uh, it certainly is is, is rewarding uh, to go through for, for well, ourselves. Well, I think as, that in this area, certainly it's always difficult to implement changes in systems and to make them stick. I think palliative care is an area that seems to be even more challenging because it uh, can be perceived as threatening uh, by primary clinicians who may view palliative care uh, in a more traditional way as something that is turned to only after uh, all life-prolonging treatments have been exhausted and the patient is just about at the moment of death. And most people don't see their patients at that point. It, first of all, it's very difficult, especially when someone's critically ill, to predict exactly which direction they're going in. And people want full intensive care to continue as long as it's potentially going to be helpful. So what I think is really important in this setting is not to tie the value of palliative care involvement to uh, something that is necessarily uh, a dismal prognosis, but to tie it to the value of the input from someone who specializes in these areas for the entire uh, spectrum of intensive care patients, all of whom have serious illness and all of whom are going to uh, experience consequences of their critical illness, uh, even if they recover well from the critical illness itself. Yeah, uh, thank you for, for including that. The, you know, as I, as I read through the criteria I did have that concern. Um, so, I mean, choosing the the, the right criteria to discuss, even um, with the stakeholders involved in critical care, are important. And so many of them focus on the this idea of um, near death or um, horrible um, prognosis. And I, I do wonder: um, are those the most criteria to select for, especially an institution that maybe um, this? The, the idea of palliative care may be alarming to, to certain folks in the institution. Right. Well, I think that it probably a uh, range of criteria might be uh, put together to compose a group that would also include things that are, um, you know, prevalent regardless of prognosis, like, you know, complex symptom management in the face of multiple organ failure or... Uh, you know, challenges in communication, uh, with always with sensitivity to um, the feeling on the part of many primary clinicians that they themselves are uh, properly skilled to do this, and many of them are, and um, 
But like every other area, there are sometimes situations in, that are particularly complex or particularly refractory uh, where a specialist can be helpful. And so I think framing the range of criteria in this way to include uh, patients regardless of prognosis based on their needs rather than their prognosis, right? right? Hospice care is determined in our current system by prognosis. Palliative care is based on need. And so I think that's the important issue. And the idea for patients who do have a dismal prognosis, who are within the group who may be in this uh, range of criteria, is not that they need it because of the prognosis particularly, but because those are the situations where communication may be particularly challenging, where symptom management may be difficult, and so on. So I think you're very right to focus on need rather than prognosis. That's a great point. In implementation, in both in implementation clinically and in, in terms of um, uh, research evaluation, uh, I do wonder what the most appropriate outcome measures are uh, for research and, and both in terms of evaluating a, a program or what are the what are the endpoints that we should be focusing on or what and I guess in, in those terms what are, what are the ideal outcome measures and what are the most practical outcome measures that w- one can measure in their own institution right so I think you've framed the question in a good way um, because um, there may be, outcomes that are ideal, but it may not be feasible for uh, intensive care practice um, in a clinical setting to collect those outcomes on a regular basis. I do think it's important to emphasize, as you have, that some meaningful outcomes do need to be tracked. With any uh, change initiative, it's very important to hold ourselves accountable for the outcomes of what we do. And so, for example, Peter Pronovost always pushes us to ask the question, have we made things safer? Have we really reduced risk? Have we met needs better? And not just what is it that we have done, but have we uh, accomplished it? And many times we just don't know whether we have or we haven't until we look and until we track some outcomes that are meaningful. We feel like we're doing something good. We feel like we're getting someplace, but we really need to know. And knowing then helps us to go back, reformulate, look at what the barriers are, and figure out um, how we can make more progress and how we can avoid situations that are giving us difficulty. So ideally, uh, what we're looking at in terms of outcomes have to do with um, those that are clinical and of importance to our patients and families and to some extent um, to us as clinicians. So we want to know that patients and families are having a better experience and getting their needs met more effectively through this, uh, the changes that are being implemented as part of this initiative. So that is ideal. There may be... Um, ways to access that information without taking on um, the full burden of collecting it oneself if there are other kinds of surveys that are being done uh, that apply to ICU patients and families. But again, it can be very difficult to isolate information about the ICU experience 
from surveys that look at uh, the broader experience. And it can always be difficult to try to engage uh, certainly ICU patients who are often incapacitated, but even their families who are often in crisis uh, to be answering questionnaires about their experience. Having said that, even some more informal interviewing of patients and families uh, can be helpful in getting their perspective on uh, the impact of some change initiative. And I think people should be uh, should be in enthusiastic about trying to do that even if um, they cannot collect formal quantitative data on a large scale, which many people cannot do. So that's getting outcome data. We're also interested in process measurement data. So how well are we following uh, the processes that we've tried to implement? For example, are we uh, using the screening criteria, are people coming into our intensive care unit getting screened, uh, looking for unmet palliative care needs or whether they meet criteria that have been established, and how quickly is that screen being applied? And if they're screening in a way that suggests they may need palliative care input, either from the specialists or from the ICU team themselves, um, how is that input being engaged? Who is making the calls to make sure that somebody is looking into it and providing the care that people need, and how long does it take to get them to come? So I think all of these are steps along the way of process. Are the criteria being applied? Is it easy to apply them? Uh, are referrals being generated, and are they, uh, is the consultative input or the integrative input occurring? So these are really process-based measures. And in addition to that, uh, one can evaluate utilization measures with the constraints and concerns that we talked about before, which is uh, to be sure that one isn't suggesting that by providing good palliative care that one would only be saving costs through such um, out utilization outcomes as shortening length of stay or so forth, but that um, but to track those outcomes and recognize that what they reflect is uh, more timely establishment of the care plan. So one certainly can look at ICU length of stay, uh, transitional care, uh, sites to which patients are getting discharged, and so forth, use of intensive care resources. So these are the kinds of things. And what I would really advise people to do is not to think big, but to think small, at least initially and to take on tracking that they can handle. If one is going to review medical records, for example, the idea would be to start with a feasible sample that's relatively small and see what that shows and then uh, expand that if it's possible or not, if it's not feasible. What's very important in this day and age is not to add to the enormous burdens that all intensive care clinicians are facing, particularly in terms of quality monitoring. And if people view this as just yet another burden in terms of quality, they will lose their enthusiasm and their uh, favorable attitude toward uh, more effective integration of palliative care into the ICU. Thank you. That's certainly very reassuring that we can start small. I think we, many of us come up with these grandiose ideas of a huge implementation plan and 
various number of outcomes and processes that we'll measure. And uh, the idea of starting, starting with small steps and, uh, and taking it uh, slowly and within the resources that you have allotted to yourself uh, is certainly very nice to hear. Uh, in, in closing, I wonder if, uh, if there are other um, thoughts uh, that you wanted to get across or if there are other, um, if there's other advice you would like to offer to folks that are uh, interested in um, furthering their initiatives in, in palliative care integration in the ICU. Well, I certainly want to emphasize again the importance of the preliminary work um, in terms of listening to the needs and interests of um, the important stakeholders um, in an institution and identifying what the individual uh, unit and institutional priorities are because any change effort is going to have much greater success if one starts in those two places, identifying the local priorities and listening to what people need and are willing to accept. There's no question that if one speaks to primary physicians, for example, and asks them uh, a question like, where have you found uh, palliative care input to be most helpful um, with your critically ill patients, that that's a terrific starting place to point out to them that um, this input has also been helpful to some of their colleagues in some other areas, would they... Um, be willing to consider something like that to begin with possibly uh, a set of elective criteria rather than mandatory. And then if they're working well and developing increasing acceptance to then uh, embed them more in uh, the routine trigger. So I think that's number one. I I think also understanding um, the resources of the palliative care service and building the relationships between the intensive care team and the palliative care service um, are other crucial building blocks without which an effort like this um, is doomed Um, because people need to be able to relate to one another. And this involves both sides of the relationship. So on the one hand, one would hope that Uh, the intensive care team can come to trust and welcome the contributions of specialists in palliative medicine. And on the other side of the equation, the palliative care team needs to appreciate what the needs and goals of the intensive care team are and to take stock of how much pride many intensivists take in their own abilities to communicate with patients and their families and to relieve symptoms and so forth. So I think both sides of this equation are very, very important. We refer sometimes to consultation etiquette, meaning that the consultant needs to remember the role as consultant and provide what's helpful and not to overstep uh, the bounds of that etiquette. The other thing is that this is a full interdisciplinary team effort. So Palliative care teams are um, interdisciplinary teams that bring the expertise of physicians, nurses, and chaplains and social workers and so forth. And intensive care teams are teams too. And it is absolutely essential to involve nurses and members of other disciplines 
uh, in these efforts as well as physicians because we all know now that every important outcome in intensive care benefits from team collaboration, and this is no exception. In some ways, I think of... uh ICU medicine is having, in some regards, a head start um, in terms of palliative care integration uh, because of the strong interdisciplinary uh, work that's already been done in critical care for quite some time. Um, so I think it's I a natural blend. Thank you so much for uh, um, all your great talking points, uh, as well as uh, all the work that you and, and your colleagues have done um, to really move this process forward and uh, help a lot of other folks um, follow in your footsteps. Uh, it's really been delightful speaking with you and uh, appreciate all your efforts. Well, I thank you for inviting me again, and I do hope that people will find the IPAL ICU website uh, useful. Um, and for those out there who have resources that they think are valuable, to share them with us so that um, we can review them and disseminate them more widely um, through this venue to make this work go forward um, in the best possible way across the country. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you again. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching for SCCM. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. SCCM has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. Visit SCCM's online store at www.sccm.org slash store. For SCCM's logo apparel, visit www.sccm.org apparel. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.